Our second scripture this morning comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 34, verses 29 to 35. Listen again for a word from God. Moses came down from Mount Sinai. As he came down from the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant in his hand, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking to God. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, the skin of his face was shining, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and the leaders of the congregation returned to him. And Moses spoke to them. Afterwards, all the Israelites came near, and he gave them in commandment all that the Lord had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak to him, he would take the veil off until he came out. And then when he came out and told the Israelites what he had been commanded, the Israelites would see the face of Moses, that the skin of his face was shining. And Moses would put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak to him. The word of the Lord. Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You've probably heard somewhere along the line that change is good, that the only constant in life is change. But change, and this isn't news to you, is also hard, painful, even. And so while most of us, most of the time, are okay with change in theory, even dream about it sometimes, when it comes in reality, in practice, we don't always welcome change with open arms. Maybe you've heard the story of the inattentive workaholic husband who suddenly realized the error of his ways and decided to surprise his wife with a night to remember. He went down to the department store and bought her that dress she'd been looking at for a long time and admiring. He bought her a large bottle of perfume, her favorite kind, to go with it. The husband ordered tickets to her favorite Broadway play, the one that she'd been wanting to see for a long, long time. On his way home, he decided to stop by the florist and bought her the best bouquet of a dozen red roses that, he could, that they had. Um, upon arriving at the house, the husband exploded into the kitchen, hugged his wife affectionately, and grandly presented her with all the gifts that he brought. I just want you to know, dear, that I love you, I appreciate you, and I adore you. But instead of melting into his arms as he expected, his wife got angry. This has been the worst day of my life, she said, her voice rising. 
It was awful all day at the office. We lost our biggest account. My co-workers were obnoxious. When I got home, the kids had destroyed the house, the babysitter quit, and the water heater is out. And now, to top it off, my normally sober husband comes home drunk. We are suspicious of change. If it's not part of the plan, if it isn't something we've scheduled, then the change is really something that makes us suspicious. Which is why today, of all days in the Christian year, can be a difficult day for us. Because it's Transfiguration Sunday, as we've said. The Oxford Dictionary defines transfiguration, in case it's a word with which you are unfamiliar, as, and I quote, a complete change of form or appearance into a more beautiful or spiritual state. A complete change into a more beautiful or spiritual state. Is that what we're looking for, a complete change, really? Is that what you're looking for today? You know, I saw the other day this incredible photograph of a waterfall called Horsetail Falls in Yosemite National Park out in California. Every year, around this time of year, around the second week of February, actually, the setting sun hits the waterfall, this Horsetail Falls in Yosemite, at the perfect angle to illuminate its upper reaches. And if the conditions are right, if there's enough snowpacks or there's enough water coming down the falls, and if the western sky is clear, Horsetail Falls all of a sudden glows bright and orange at sunset, giving the illusion of a cascade of fire coming down the face of the mountain. It is amazing. Check it out on YouTube. Not now. But transfiguration can happen on the East Coast, too. Anybody who's gone up on the ridge just a few, maybe about a quarter mile from here, maybe even less, when the sun is setting and seeing the light hitting the buildings of Manhattan the, as the sun is setting, knows what it is to witness a city a cold, gray Gotham city, suddenly on fire, completely transfigured, changed into a beautiful or more spiritual state, even if only for a few seconds. This Sunday of Transfiguration is the day when the church, when we tell ourselves the story of the glorified Son of God, transfigured, changed himself, there on that mountaintop with his Three closest friends, Peter, James, and John. Jesus' face and his clothes become radiant with God's presence, which is indicated and symbolized by the fact that Moses and Elijah, who have been dead for centuries, are there too. We see the Son of God emanating, radiating the rays of God's glory and presence and showing us that that's who God is wishes to be Emmanuel, God with us. And the disciples, Peter especially, say, that is awesome. Love this up here on the mountain, Jesus. Good job. But they don't get it. Peter then says, let's take a selfie and freeze this moment right here. Let's build some tents so we'll never have to leave. But before Peter is done speaking, God moves Peter's story and our story as a church forward. 
God's voice says there on that mountaintop, this is my beloved son, listen to him and get yourself ready for some change. Friends, today as war and fear are breaking out, as refugees are on the move, as the markets are all over the place, as tension continues to plague us here at home, and before we start this hard journey of Lent, this journey of self-reflection and confrontation with our own limitations that shows us our need for God's victory at Easter, six and a few days, six weeks and a few days from now, the light that shines through Jesus on the Transfiguration Mountain shines on us too, telling us and assuring us that whatever's happening, we're not in this alone. Now, fair warning, I've been working on this for days. Here comes a pun. Both of the texts that Graham just read this morning reflect the Transfiguration story. I thought it was hilarious, all right? Both talk about what the change that happens to Jesus on that mountaintop in the Transfiguration story means about the change that needs to happen to us, in us, through us. The story from Acts, for example, the famous story of Saul's conversion on the road to Damascus, which Graham read, is derivative of the Transfiguration story. The early church needed to know that what happened with Jesus could happen with them as well, that God's presence was with them as well. And so when a light from heaven knocks Saul, a Jewish Pharisee who's been hunting and killing Christians in these early years of the Christian church, when that light knocks Saul to the ground, blinding him, something moves Saul, this mean, terrible, dangerous man, to have enough courage and enough curiosity to ask the light, who are you? And he gets an answer. I am Jesus, whom you have been persecuting. Uh-oh. But there's more. The voice then says, get up, Saul, and go into Damascus and wait for instructions, wait to be told what you should do next. And so Saul, still blind, blinded by the light, lets himself be guided by his traveling companions into the city of Damascus. And this man's unexpected, unwanted, unplanned for encounter with God suddenly means that for him, nothing will ever be the same if he will let the light that he has encountered change him. And that's what Saul does. He takes his first step toward God, the first step toward becoming Paul the apostle of Jesus Christ, the founder, really, of the Christian church as we know it. Nothing really in the world is ever the same again because of this story, because Saul lets himself be changed. And of course, the transfiguration story and the story of Saul on the road to Damascus in the book of Acts, in the New, both of those in the New Testament are just, in a way, retellings of our second reading this morning from Exodus, the Old Testament memory of Moses finally delivering the two tablets with the Ten Commandments 
to the people as he comes down the mountain, his face glowing and radiating with the presence and the glory and the love and the power of the living God. Moses has already led an exciting life. He started out life as a baby sailing in a basket on the Nile River, only to be plucked up out of the water by Pharaoh's daughter, this child of Hebrew slaves. Moses is then raised as royalty, as the prince of Egypt. But as a young man, he throws all that away. He throws away a dazzling future and career by killing an Egyptian taskmaster who was beating a Hebrew slave. Moses then, as a murderer, becomes a fugitive, fleeing for his life in the desert wilderness. One day, sitting by a well, Moses meets Zipporah, and later they marry. So while working as a shepherd for her father, Moses grazes the sheep too close to this mountain called Horeb, or also known as Sinai. And on the top of Sinai, he notices a bush that is on fire, But it isn't only burning and not burning up. This burning bush also talks. It speaks. And there Moses and God, speaking out of the bush, converse. God lays out a plan for Moses to go and confront Pharaoh, the emperor of Egypt, to liberate God's people from their oppression and slavery and subjugation in Egypt. And Moses doesn't really want to do it. He doesn't feel up to the challenge. He's not a good public speaker, he says. He probably had other uh, trepidations as well. But God promises to be with him and to provide him with the right words. Years later, after wandering with God's people around the wilderness, after the Passover, after the Exodus, after the parting of the Red Sea, Moses finds himself back up on Mount Sinai again, this time God gives him the Ten Commandments first edition. And when Moses comes down the mountain, when he comes down from his mountaintop experience, he expects everybody to welcome welcome him and the Ten Commandments from God with open arms. But instead, he finds out that the natives, while he was gone, had been getting restless. The desert is hot. There's no food. All they have to eat is manna. Egypt and even slavery are looking better and better all the time. I love this image that the preacher and scholar Mary Lautensleger has. She says, God's people had hoped to stay in the Sinai Sheraton with its expansive menu, but found instead that they were enrolled in a 40-year outward-bound program. They had to sleep on the ground, making their necks stiff. They had to eat the same tasteless manna every single day. The people down in the valley were not happy campers, and they therefore shift from trusting God's glory and God's love to trusting idol worship. They, led by Aaron, Moses' brother, may make for themselves a golden calf. The Back to Egypt committee convinces Aaron to make that calf because they had something, they needed something they could see and control. And of course, that shift of trust away from God, makes God and Moses pretty mad. So when Moses gets down the mountain the first time with the first edition of the Ten Commandments, he is really upset, and he throws those two tablets against a rock, shattering them. Then it's back up the mountain, back up to consult with God and to get those commandments replaced. And this time, this morning, 
when he comes down the mountain, again with those two new tablets, Moses doesn't realize that his skin, his face, is shining, glowing, radiating. And we can see here where this important biblical theme that keeps recurring throughout the Old and New Testament gets its start. The Hebrew here in Exodus can be translated, instead of glowing, radiating, or even more specifically, precisely, emanating rays, right? So Moses gives the people the commandments, but what I'd like us to think about and to consider this morning is that he also gives them and us evidence of what can happen when you allow yourself to be changed by God's presence in your life. You know, there's really no better sermon than that, than allowing yourself to be changed. Don't tell me I need to change, or that the world needs to change, that the world needs to be more peaceful or more just, or the world needs to be whatever, if you're not willing to walk the walk, if you're not willing to change yourself. God knows that change is a constant in this world. But I don't think all change is created equal. The Reformed Presbyterian Protestant branch of Christianity sees your relationship with God and my relationship with God as always moving, always dynamic, always changing, as defined by change. That relationship, ours, our relationship with God, always starts with grace, with God taking the first step, reaching out to us, moving in our direction, offering a better way. But it takes more than amazing grace, more than that first step, our relationship with God, abundant life as Jesus calls it, takes an amazing response of gratitude from us, a willingness to let go of what we're holding on to, what we've gotten used to, what we started to rely on, and letting ourselves be changed. And that's hard, but it just might be worth everything. In the 1980s, Robert Fulham, the author, wrote a hugely best-selling book called All I Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. How many of you read that book back when it came out? It's a very popular book. In that book, among many other interesting stories, there is a true story of a 33-year-old truck driver by the name of Larry Walters who was sitting in his lawn chair in his backyard one day wishing he could fly. For as long as he could remember, Larry had wanted to fly, but he never had the time or the money or the opportunity to learn how to be a pilot. Hang gliding was out because he lived in a kind of a flat area of the Midwest. There was no good place to hang glide near where he was. So Larry spent a lot of summer afternoons sitting in his backyard in his ordinary old aluminum lawn chair, which those of us of a certain generation remember, the kind with the webbing and the rivets, the kind we all had. You know, when you got up from them on a hot day, the, the pattern was in your thighs. That's the kind we're talking about. One day, Larry Walters hooked 45 helium-filled surplus weather balloons to that lawn chair, put a CB radio in his lap, tied a paper bag full of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches to his leg, 
slung a BB gun over his shoulder so he could pop the balloons when he wanted to come down, and he took off. Larry lifted off his lawn, expecting maybe to climb about a couple of hundred feet over his neighborhood, but instead, Larry Walter shot up 11,000 feet right through the approach corridor to the nearest international airport. And asked by the press why he did it, so apparently he survived. <laughs> Larry answered, well, you can't just sit there. And when, and when, asked, when asked if he was scared, Larry answered, yes, wonderfully scared. Anthropologist and novelist Zora Neale Hurston writes about how Larry's attitude was taught in her family from the moment she and her brothers and sisters were born. Hurston relates that her own mama exhorted her children at every opportunity to jump at the sun. They might not land on the sun, she told them, but at least they would get off the ground. Life is a myriad of experiences, Hurston explains. From the valley to the mountaintop, I have been in Sorrow's kitchen and licked out all the pots. Then I have stood on the peaky mountain, wrapped in rainbows with a harp and a sword in my hands. We can all identify with the high and low points in her life because they mirror our life's journey. But if the light of God which we know will always shine on us, gets inside of us, if we'll let it get inside of us and then radiate out from us, not just we, but everybody we touch will be illuminated and warmed and inspired as well. Amen.